Black and white and red all over. Ian Murta. He can talk football all day. Well, it's not been the greatest of weeks for the North East sides, has it? And I was just wondering if there's anybody out there, anyone, who thinks Newcastle, Sunderland or Middlesbrough are going to win this weekend. Because I don't. Now, everyone who's been listening to the three legends, well, they're just all hopeless optimists, aren't they? But it's going to be tough. Newcastle, well, let's look back at their two performances. Against Arsenal, lost 4-1. It was one of the most one-sided games I've seen for a long, long time. It could have been 6-1, 7-1. And then at Blackburn, well, they struggled, didn't they? They they had luck on the side during the game and penalty shootout. But then about 20 hours later, it was probably only about 10 hours later for those fans who made the journey then got back in the early hours. Well, luck certainly wasn't on their side when they were given the hardest possible draw in the quarterfinals, Manchester City away. Let's talk about Sunderland. Well, Sunderland head to Norwich tomorrow. A Norwich side who've picked up lately. Sunderland have lost the last three games. Poor performances as well. Uh, no Jack Clark. Will Dan Ballard be back? Well, I think he faces a late fitness test. So it's very, very difficult to see Sunderland repeating last season's 1-0 win at Carrow Road, which sparked, a, sparked their incredible run into the season. Middlesbrough, well, the side who can't win at home, aren't they? A bit like Newcastle, really. At least Middlesbrough have had something to celebrate this week. Unfortunately, what they're celebrating happened 20 <laughs> years ago. And uh, Dave and I, we, we'll be talking about that memorable Carling Cup win at the Millennium Stadium in 2004, because we were both there. Mm. And uh, in my 38 year, thir- 38, I'm giving myself too many years there, in my 35-year career in Northeast Sport... Uh, it is the only major honour I have seen any of our teams win. And I admit, fans have been asking, did you cry that day? Well, listen, I wasn't brought up a Middlesbrough fan, but I, I, could feel, I could feel my lips quivering on the final whistle when I realised that at last a North East side had won something. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I was asked that question uh, last night on the Reds by Andy Campbell about did you cry? And I don't remember crying, but what I do remember on the final whistle is turning to my mate who I'd travelled down with because I was there as a fan that day, not as a, a journalist. And I turned around to him and I just went, we're in Europe. And that's what that full-time whistle meant to me. It was only afterwards I thought, and we've lifted the first piece of major silverware in the club's history. But the first reaction was, we're in Europe. I've got so mem- many memories that day. I, I drove down to Cardiff on on, on the Saturday morning uh, with a fellow journalist. I'd never been to Cardiff before. My first memory is, what a fantastic city. We had a great night out, I remember, on the, on the Saturday before the Cup final. It was wonderful atmosphere in the city centre. And then uh, I got up quite early for breakfast on the day of the final. And I remember I had breakfast at the same table as... Uh, the the late wonderful Louise Wanlass and and her father, Middlesbrough fans. Now Louise became was um, at Sunderland at the time. She worked at Sunderland for a long, long but time. But she did but come from her, Borough, didn't she? She was, she, she was a Borough, Borough club. Yeah. She 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 loved both clubs. And I, I, poor Louise isn't with us anymore now. But I can remember the excitement of her and her father. You know, they they'd seen like I had, like you had, Dave, seen uh, Middlesbrough lose three finals in, in in the previous five or six years, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful day. And I was again, that was my first experience of the Millennium Stadium as well. And uh, 
it straight away went into, I've been I'm fortunate to be in many great stadiums around the world and uh, it went right up there to be one of my top three or four. I think what, what helped the occasion was the roof was closed that day. Yes. And what it meant was the noise, the atmosphere that was generated in the stadium kept within the stadium. You know, the, the acoustics meant it, it sounded noisier than it probably would have been with, with the roof open. And, yes. and I think that helped the occasion as well. That's right. I, I can remember because I think, I, I don't think the weather was too bad in Cardiff, but I remember had, uh, setting off in the car from the northeast when it was with snow on the ground, quite heavy snow. I think it cleared up sort of uh, probably north of Weatherby, certainly, and it, was, it wasn't it was a bad journey down, but we wondered how long it would take us to, to make that 350-mile uh, trip. Yeah, I remember we went the night before, so for us it was easy. Mm. Uh, we didn't want to take the chance, booked a little place on the outskirts of Cardiff, went down there with a, it was a car full, and uh, that meant we could be in Cardiff on the morning, get a bite to eat, and then start wandering around because it was uh, a two o'clock kickoff that game, and uh, so slightly earlier than the norm, and uh, that made things a lot easier. But the drive back, yeah, once you once 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 we got closer to God's country, Ian, um, yeah, the weather, they, they, it was apparent while the roof was closed because it was wet down there, um, mm. but like you say, there was uh, there was there was wintry conditions up here, and of course. Uh, the, the Middlesbrough went two to two up uh, very early on. Joseph Job get the first goal, and of course it, it it always makes me laugh when I think of him. The one of the greatest player chants I've ever heard. One job on T side is only one job on T side. Yeah. I love that one. I yeah, love that one. It was special. It, it really was special. And we talked to uh, we talked to Steve McLaren yesterday on the Red, and um, you know asking him about his memories uh, also expanded at his time at the club and and what he thinks of the present situation, uh, but his memories was quite interesting. Uh, he um, you know he was talking about um, the joy seeing the joy on Janino's face because yes, that course. little guy had invested so much in leaving his home, uh, coming to Teesside, obviously having to leave going through relegation with the club uh, the the ankle injury which almost ended his career at one point but he came mm-hmm. back from That's he right. returned to Teesside you know and, and then he saw his face and um, you know he said that was that was one of his uh, abiding memories of the win yes yeah absolutely wonderful wonderful memories Right, um, I think uh, first guest coming up will be uh, we'll be having a chat with him very shortly who's uh, who's coming on mate well, my first guest, and uh, listeners might remember when, it, when he was a young whippersnapper on Time T's television about 20 years ago, uh, Andy Kerr, who went off to seek his fame and fortune in the Middle East, and uh, he, he lived in Qatar for 10 years, and he's still working for Bayern Sports. So mm. I'm very, very interested to hear from Andy about, you know, what, what the level of interest in football out there is is it just about the Premier League do people look at the championship you know I'm not going to get too much in, into the geopolitics of being sports and uh, the Saudi Arabia etc I think we, we we had our fill of that for three or four years ago didn't we yeah but uh, looking forward to having a chat with Andy okay so uh, that chat with Andy coming up next there now follows an experiment in radiophonic communication Immediately upon receiving the appropriate command, listeners are instructed not to hear any of the information which follows. Please stop listening now. Right, by now you should have stopped listening. Have you stopped listening? No, you haven't, have you? All right, let's try it again. Stop listening now. You're still listening, aren't you? I can tell. For the last time, will you please all stop listening now? 
It's no good. This thing isn't going to work at all. I mean, what is the point of trying to undertake a serious scientific experiment if nobody in the country is actually... You have just taken part in a demonstration of why radio is the world's most intrusive advertising medium. You can close your eyes, but you can't close your ears. They're still listening, you know. You're listening to our station, and so are your customers. So contact our sales team on sales at raagroupuk.com. Are you listening carefully? That's sales at raagroupuk.com to get your business heard right across the northeast. Don't you listen to what the man says? Black and white and red all over. Three decades of reporting northeast football. Ian Murta. Andy Kurt, welcome to the Black and White and Red All Over show. Evening, Ian. How are you? I'm fine, Andy. We were just we've been reminiscing about uh, Middlesbrough's calling Cup triumph down in Cardiff uh, twenty years ago today, uh, or yesterday rather, and that was around about the time when uh, the Northeast suddenly became aware of a very young Andy Kerr. You were you joined Tyntees <laughs> just a couple of months earlier, hadn't you? I was, you know, I didn't go to Cardiff, but I was at the Riverside a day later for the parade. It was, it was brilliant. Do you know what? Some of my favourite football memories involved watching Middlesbrough in the other sort of two or three years that followed that as well. Those brilliant European nights oh. they, when they got to Eindhoven in the semi-final, the quarter-final. They were, they were good days, very good days. Oh. Absolutely, and as a new boy, Tanties, you you were probably left at home making the making the tea, weren't you? <laughs> when when the others went down to Cardiff, but you've had quite a quite a career since both uh, both here and in the Middle East. Oh, absolutely! You know, we we had a good team at Tanties at that point. There was some really good journalists. You know, people who are probably a little bit older will remember Roger Thames, who was at who was the, the boss, who was brilliant to work with. And obviously, yes, he's, he's been on this, this show, yeah, yeah. Of course, it was. Yeah, it was. Do you know, it was like being in the reserves. It was hard to get a game at that point. Yeah, it was. It was a really <laughs> team. Yeah, but it was good. Yeah, very. I loved it at times. He's absolutely brilliant. Do you know? It's it's interesting. You you were talking about uh, Middlesbrough subsequent to the two thousand and four Collin Cup win over Bolton because I, I to this day I still would nominate that the, the two games in the UEFA Cup against Basel and Story Progress as the best I've ever covered from, from a, a journalistic point of view, footballing point of view, achievement point of view, just absolute magnificent drama. And I think that Middlesbrough team that, that reached the, uh, the European final was a better side than the one that uh, played in, in Cardiff. Oh, definitely, without a doubt. The, the Cardiff team was good, but then you think, once, once they went on to that next level, some of the players that they had in that squad, because bear in mind, once they got through um, into that European one, we had, we had the, the young players coming through. Do you remember sort of uh, like Stuart Downing was it was an established player by that point. James Morrison was a really good player. Frank Quadru had really established himself. Massimo Macaroni was the hero. By that point, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Mark Viduka. It was, I mean, it's, they are household names even now, 20 years later. I think probably yeah. 2004. It was a good team, but it was, I think... I think, yeah, no, you're right, I agree with you. The European team was, was probably just took it on a notch. And what was really nice is a few of that team, I've stayed sort of fairly on fairly good terms with when I went over to the Middle East. We had um, we had Bolo Zenden and um, 
Gaze Gamendietta came over and did, did studios with us over there. And, and you know what? They're Fantastic. a really nice bunch. It was a really, it wasn't, you know, sometimes people get the wrong idea about, about footballers and, and think maybe that they're distant from, from a, a kind of the, the, the normal life. Those, those two were probably the biggest stars in that team, along with Gareth. Such, such nice fellas. Such really yeah. genuine down to earth guys. It was that, I think that's why, probably as journalists, we, we probably enjoyed it so much because you felt like you were quite close to us. That's right. I mean, uh, Mark Viduka, a fully fit Mark Viduka, was as good a centre forward as I've ever seen. And I, I, I can remember Alan Shearer t- saying that about him as well during his spell at Newcastle. Now, although that ended in, in relegation because Viduka barely played, but at his best, that, that man was almost unplayable. In fact, forget the almost, he was unplayable. Oh, uh, well, this, this, this is the daft thing. It, it was such a shame that by the time he went to Newcastle, that, that he just, he, he could barely, you know, his, his legs had gone, to use the phrase. He was, he'd had so many injuries yeah. by that point. But when he played for Middlesbrough, you know, it was that way you would just, you'd get the ball, hold it up and he, in the nicest possible way, he'd use it, that big backside just to stick it right in the defender. And you just couldn't, you literally couldn't get around him. And he used every asset he had. And he was absolutely brilliant player for Middlesbrough. Top, top, top striker. Let, let, let's talk about, about your career, Andy, and uh, moving, moving to Bay in sports now. All our listeners will have heard of Bain Sports because it was um, it featured obviously very much in the geopolitical uh, battle for the Newcastle takeover three or four years ago. But that you know we're not going to get uh, embroiled in that controversy at this stage. But tell tell me about it. Is it is it as simple to say that it is the the Middle East version of Sky Sports? To be fair, you know that's that's a pretty good analogy. So I I went over there. In for the first time, I went over in 2010, just before the World Cup in South Africa, met the bosses. Um, and what I thought was going to be sort of a fairly short term uh, placement or sort of short term contract, really, went over, did the South Africa World Cup uh, on behalf of what was then Al Jazeera. And it did a few little bits and pieces for them. And it, it kind of turned into Sort of, well, I'm still, still part of being sports now, but living in Qatar, it ends up being about 10 years of my life. They invited us over, or invited me over. I went over with my family, expecting to do a couple of years. And it's, it's yeah, it, it is like Sky Sports. It's enormous. It's hard to, you probably, unless you've seen it, it's hard to describe. You know, the, the global sort of headquarters in Doha, they've got 10 purpose-built studios, which are better than anything I'd ever seen. And, I, and I've, I've travelled a lot, spent time, you know, in the States, ESPN, obviously being down to Sky in, in, in London, um, BBC, ITN. Being sports headquarters is absolutely phenomenal. They've got these, it, it's it's literally state of the art, every single studio. So that it's it's set up to be to be the best. And, and they are, you know, the biggest broadcaster in Asia. So you once you get yes. there and you see what what's there, it's really easy to see why you'd stay because the, the lifestyle for the family was great. But, but work-wise, they, had, they have the rights to Premier League football, to Champions League, to the Europa League. I've done uh, two Wimbledons with them every World Cup since, since joining them, the, the, um, the Euros. So, and then I think we've just re-signed the rights to Formula One this, uh, this week, so we'll be doing the Bahrain Grand Prix. So it, I suppose that's a really fair... And as you would, it's a bit like a sort of an Arabic version mm. or an Asian version of Sky Sports here. Now, obviously, we know there's a large expat community in Dubai and uh, and Qatar. But t- tell me, it, it the the indigenous population, Andy. Now we we hear they are obsessed with Premier League football. Is it just the big teams? Is there any interest 
in English football outside the Premier League, or is it all very much based on on the the big teams? Do you know, I think that that's when you go outside of Britain. And one of the good things about about travelling, you get a chance to sort of see this from the outside, and it, yeah. it's not even just the Premier League. It's almost sort of the, the big two, if you like, really, uh, to start with. So Manchester United and Liverpool are, are global brands. Yes. And that's the same anywhere you go in the world. A bit like Barcelona and, and Real Madrid, I suppose, Madrid, in, in that yeah. aspect. And the, the numbers will kind of, will sort of go drop down a little bit as you go down the division. But no, absolutely, yeah, Premier League football is, is massive over uh, in the Middle East. And it's, you talk about the indigenous population. And the Arabic. So the, the way being work, which which is great, is obviously they, everything is broadcast in well, initially two languages, now three actually, because they'll do everything in in Arabic, in English, and in French. And obviously, I'm involved primarily in the English, but but there's sort of there's an overspill into Arabic as well. So I'll I'll work across the the two languages. Right. So now I'm back in the UK, but I'll, I'll look after. I'll, I'm at the grounds rather than being in the studio. But yes. yeah, the, the the numbers are huge. So obviously, Arabic is, is king. You know, you are in an Arabic speaking part of the world. But what we'll do. Is we'll do everything in three languages because obviously a huge part of that region will be will be French speaking. A lot of the French Arabic countries in North Africa, and then obviously, as you said, a lot of expat um, expats in in Qatar, Dubai. But actually, English is really well spoken, and this is always one of the things I always think about being uh, being British or English speaking. Is one of the the great things is wherever you go in the world, or most places then people will speak English. But it's also oh. a curse in a way because it, it doesn't force you to learn languages. So even though I spent 10 years living there, I never really felt like I was anywhere near fluent in Arabic. I learned what I needed to learn to kind of go about daily life. But you, but it's English is so well spoken in that, in that part of yes. the world. You, you don't, there's not really a huge need for you to, to learn, which is a shame, really. Yes. And, you, you know, you say Premier League is king over there. Is You know, obviously people will watch El Clasico, Bayern Munich or another worldwide brand. But will, will people sit down and watch the watch the uh, La Liga? Will they watch the Bundesliga? Will they watch French League? Do you know what? I, I can um, I would the Clasico is probably the biggest game. So that in terms of pure numbers, when you just look at how many people have watched the game, the classical will be the one that does bigger numbers than, than everything else. And the, but then you get the Would that, the would big that even be bigger than Liverpool Man United, for instance, would it? Do you know, don't hold me to this, but I'm I'm fairly confident in saying more people in in sort of the in across all of the being territories will watch the Classico than will watch Liverpool Man United. But what I'd say I my I, I was never one for studying the ratings massively, but I think you'll find there's this probably more Premier League games would be in your, if you looked at like the top 20 viewing matches of a season, there'll be probably more Premier League games than there would be certainly German, but probably Spanish. But mm. they won't do the numbers. I don't think that the Classico does because that's just, that that's globally, it's, it's enormous. And so if you think being goes across all of Asia, that's North Africa, the, uh, the Gulf states, and then don't forget, being have have channels in Australia, in Turkey, in sort of Southeast Asia, uh, the the United States. So it's kind of it's not just about like the Middle East. If it's it's kind of the whole, you know, they've got a footprint globally really nowadays. Now I know your working brief is is a is a, is a vast one. You you cover Champions League, and you co- I think you you cover football in the north for for being and I think it was Newcastle's opponents tomorrow is included in the north but I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets to say you are a northeast lad it must be lovely that now that you've 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 come back home as it were and you're able to see the northeast teams in the flesh rather than just on a on a, a 
I guess sixty inch screen or something over there. But it must be nice yeah. to be to be in the press boxes again. Yeah, it, it is brilliant. You know, sadly, I don't spend as much time at Sunderland and Middlesbrough as I as I'd like. It, it would make my life so much easier if if they would get promoted back up to the Premier League. Because obviously, fundamentally, as you say, I I, I cover the the North, and you're right, the North yes. does go down as far as Wolverhampton. So I suppose you know, for <laughs> me, the main you know, obviously Newcastle, Manchester United, Manchester City, which is where I'll be Sunday for the Manchester derby. I'll be covering yes. Liverpool at Forest tomorrow. So it's a it's, it's a big patch. And so it certainly is. Yeah, but yeah, no. it's brilliant. And, and I do. I live back in Newcastle now. We um, we've uh, it was it, it made. It probably doesn't make geographical sense in that by being in Newcastle, that's kind of the, the furthest north of the patch. But actually, we've got family up here, so it makes much more sense to be to be here. And I just travel. So if I'm if you know if to, I said tomorrow I'll, I'll jump in the car early doors, head down to Nottingham and do. Forest against Liverpool, which is a shame because it'd be nice to be at St James's Park. But obviously now, <laughs> where the title race is going, it's um, you, you spend your time following almost City, Liverpool, and Arsenal if they're anywhere north. Well, that's right. I mean, Newcastle v Wolves. It's very much a a clash of two mid-table sides. I think Wolves are probably the surprise packets of the season, and uh, Gary Neal's done a former Middlesbrough midfielder, of course, has done a terrific job. Newcastle, well. You know, some people say that they're underachieving. I don't. I mean, what Newcastle are, are a mid-table side, correct? Um, I I feel optimistic about next, more about next season. I, what I think what would, it would have yeah. almost been easier to, to tolerate um, for the from a doubter's point of view. If if Newcastle were doing what they're doing now, last season. And then this season was was what they did last Spot year. I think we, we almost like took Great three point. steps forward, didn't we? And it's it's yes. almost sort of raised the bar to a point where you can't really do that straight away. That said, though, I, I kind of look at the team now and I'm, I'm watching the games and thinking, you know, once Joel Linton's fit and Sandro Tonali's back eligible to play, you put those two in the midfield and it's going to look completely different. I mean, Louis Miley has been... It, it, incredible but he's only 17 and just turned so you think the you know the, the pressure that that has been put on a, on a 17 year old um and I, I get the impression it's a pressure that he's thrived upon but but really at 17 you can't be expected to dominate a premier league midfield so you bring those two back in and all of a sudden and harvey mm. barnes is fit now so there's a bit of competition up top i, I assume uh yakuba minte will come back over the summer so you had a bit of competition in the wide positions, you know, you add three or four yes. players to that squad, and you get that momentum back, which is which is massive. You know, it, it, it looks right. like they're short of confidence, and I, I, I still right. think. Go on. No, go on. No, I just I, I, uh, so so yeah, I, I wouldn't be disappointed with what's happened this season. I think if they, if they finish the season in tenth, it would, especially now given that the Manchester City Cup draw is, is makes it look as if it'd be tough to go any further in the FA Cup. Tenth would look yeah. on paper disappointing, but given the injuries this season, everything else that's gone on, you know, if I mean, what are they two points off seventh, which would be obviously a European place? If they could, if they were to sneak into the Europa League. Then I think you look at that and say that's a decent achievement for this season. That's a, seventh isn't bad, but I think they're. I, think I wouldn't they're, disagree with you. It's the best I wouldn't disagree with I think, you. I think they're not far off, sort of challenging. You say that. Top four. I, I've always thought this isn't just about Newcastle this season. It's about football in general. Footballers, they always their, their reputation soar when they're absent. Now, Tonali. Just remember when 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 the ban came for him, the jury was still very much out. Yes, he had a terrific debut against Aston Villa, but there was, if you remember at the time, 
there was a, a woeful performance. I think it was at Brighton, wasn't there? And there was a cry for Sean Longstaff to get the side. Sean Longstaff came back in and he corrected what had been a, an ill-balanced midfield. Now there's now there's demand for him to be out of the side. So I, I, I do think, you know, that uh, it's not always the big names that count. And uh, I remain to be convinced about Tonali, though I accept that as a number six, that is the role that Newcastle do need to strengthen, certainly. Yeah, I mean, look, what did he get two months at Newcastle before the ban came in? It was so it was, yeah. I mean, barely, about two and a half. So you haven't really given him a chance to settle. I mean, you think what he did for Milan the, the two previous years, especially in the Champions League, the year they got to the semi-final. I mean, he, he looks a player. And obviously, we all speak to, to Eddie Howe fairly often. One of the questions you're always asking him is what they're doing. And, and I'm sure I'm not giving him any secrets when I say that they're working a lot with with Sandro Tonali and what they call like tailored training. So they've obviously seen little parts of his game that they can work on. They're convinced he's going to come back a better player. And if he's better yes. than what Milan had that previous year, that then Newcastle are going to have a, a heck of a player on their hands. I think so. You know what? You're right. Jury is out. We, you've got to see it in a black and white shirt before you can say he's the real deal. Yes. But I think there's a, there's a huge amount of optimism about what he offers. And if Joel Linton is still here next season, which obviously is is you know is at the minute is a big question mark. But if he signs another contract at the end of the summer, but I think if Joel Linton uh, is still here next season, Tanali's back. If, and if they do add two or three more, they obviously need a bit more depth up front. You know, Callum Wilson is is spending too much time out injured at the minute. Obviously, Alexander Isak is. is struggled with his with his groin this season so they need a bit of extra cover there you'd say they'd probably want to bring in one or two at the back and, and a six as you say but you know they're, they're not a million miles away you know i think they're um they're, they're, they're close they're close to being i certainly wouldn't have said if if they do make a couple of additions they shouldn't start next season uh, and obviously the, the the three at the top i think at the minute look a little bit ahead but manchester yeah. united tottenham chelsea i don't think any any of those would start the season significantly better no. than Newcastle. No, listen, listen. I, I maintain you've got to be a pretty decent side to finish 12th, let alone 6th or 4th in the Premier League this season. Andy, I'm not going to let you escape without your predictions for the three games. And uh, I've, I've laid off Sunderland and Middlesbrough a little bit because you haven't seen a lot of them this season. But let, let's start Newcastle now. Uh, they're playing a side who've surprised an awful lot of people. I mean, Gary O'Neill is getting the very maximum out of a Wolves side, who many of us, I think me included, uh, tipped to be in a relegation struggle this season. So this this is going to be a tough game for Newcastle, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And if do you know one thing, you know, with with when, when Newcastle play Wolves, it's always tight. And the, and Newcastle always seem to draw down there. The games at St James's tend to be be pretty tight. I remember last season, I think Miggy got a late I winner do. the year before that. It was Chris Wood got that penalty, didn't he? That's right. So, yes, they have been tight. I think, yeah, I, I I mean it's going to be close. I think there'll be one goal in it either way. I, 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 it feels like they're starting to 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 get players back, but then. I didn't think they played particularly well against Blackburn. I thought they got stronger as the game went on, which is refreshing. I thought they were poor. I thought they were poor. I really do. I thought, uh, watching that game, throughout, I I thought Blackburn were going to win it. I thought they were the better side. Well, Dubravka had probably his best game, didn't he, since he took over from Nick Pope. Yeah, I I hate Dubravka. I like him. Yeah, well, I mean, we we could go on all night about the way that Newcastle play because he does play a bit too deep. And then, you know, you, so yes. you lose that sweeper element, which which causes problems. But I'd also say about going on too much is I do think that that midfield right now is is too lightweight. I think everyone can see it. Mm-hmm. They don't dominate games because they're not technically good let's enough have... to keep the ball. They're not physically dominating. So, do you know what? We're, I think we're running out of time, Andy. Let, let's let's yeah, let's, let's, let's get a score for me. Newcastle get a narrow win. Head says 
possibly another, another maybe a one-one, which would be disappointing. I'm going two-two. Now let's uh, turn to Sunderland. They've lost the last three games. Uh, Jack Clark's out, and they've got a tough trip to Norwich. We'll just have a, a quick uh, scoreline from you for that one, Andy. Do you know, I, w- I want it. Uh, do you know, Sunderland tend to do quite well away to Norwich, but it just feels like they're two teams going in, in opposite directions at the minute. So if they, if they can get, get a point, if they can get a point, I think it'd be a really good point. And I think the bigger picture is they need to figure out who they want to be the manager. Because if they, if they keep losing yes, games, absolutely. my God, I know he's holding the fall, but you know, you don't want to, you don't want to let the season drift all the way until the summer now. No, I'm afraid I'm going for a two nil defeat at Carrow Road for uh, Michael Dodd's side. And, uh, Borough, they've got a trip to Stoke. No one likes trips to Stoke, do they? And uh, although <laughs> Borough, they shocked, they shocked everyone with uh, winning at Leicester two weeks ago. Their home form's been awful, and uh, they're, they're, they're the most inconsistent side around, aren't they? Oh, by the way, it always seems to be cold in Stoke. I've never been there when it's been sunny. Oh, uh, yeah, they are inconsistent. I, I've, I've watched Middlesbrough twice this season. I saw them. I saw them beat Leicester, and I saw them beat Chelsea. So yes. you go and beat one of the, you know, a billion pounds team in Chelsea, the best team in the, in the championship. And then you go and lose at home to, what is it, last couple of weeks, Bristol City and last week. You can't explain it, can you? You can't side. explain it. So, yeah, yeah and I don't can't. know where the goals are going to come from. I don't, I don't see, I see, I see in, is it Josh Colburn, the young lad up top? Looks like he's got something. He, he's in, what, he's injured not. at the moment. And uh, last week I was, at, I was at the game against Plymouth when they were pretty dreadful. And they, they played without a recognised number nine. I had two number tens almost. So, I mean, Michael Carrick, to be fair, he held his hands up afterwards. He said he got it wrong himself and the team did as well. But uh, no, as I say, they they are, we've been saying in this show for all season, they're a weaker squad than last season. and uh, But he's trying to get a lot out of them. At the moment, they are struggling. So I can see that 1-0 to Stoke, I'm afraid. You know what? I, I fancy Borough to get something. I think they'll surprise us. And do you know what? Six of the I next eight right. are against teams below them. So I'm, I'm, yes. I still have an outside hope that Middlesbrough might just sneak in into that top seven. But they need Sunderland to do them a favour because obviously Norwich is seventh right now. So if Sunderland could, could sneak right. something, it might just do Borough a favour. Yep. So yeah, I'm going to give Borough a chance. Well, uh, it's been lovely having you on the show, Andy. And uh, oh, we'll, we'll certainly in, in, invite you on again as long as you've seen a little more of Sunderland and Middlesbrough next time, eh? <laughs> we just need one of them to get promoted to the Premier League and get them on my regular route that would be, that'd be very nice we want both of them to be in the Premier League before too Even long better. sadly I don't think it'll be next season but wouldn't it be lovely within two years we've got all three of them back they just were, like the good they, old they days when you were on time tees <laughs> all the best then, Andy. thank you very much all yeah. the best so, did, did you come across Andy on your travels uh, in I did. East, Dave? I did yeah? I did towards the end of my time but I disappeared off to uh, ESPN in uh, uh, 2003 so obviously fully aware of Roger Thames uh, Duncan yeah. Wood was there at the time um, Andy Tate was a big producer there at Tyne Tees and uh, yes. he was responsible for taking me out to ESPN in, in Singapore so yeah good right. guy good guy yes he is now uh after the break, my next guest, he's a, a former uh, writer on the journal. He's now the chief uh, sport, football writer of the Yorkshire Post. And you may be wondering, why why have I got the Yorkshire Post writer on? 
Well, what I'd like to discuss is the state of the Union, as it were, in Yorkshire and the North East. And there's a fascinating article in today's Times, which is talking about the regions and which the stronger. It's got some amazing statistics, which I'll be discussing with Stuart Rayner after this. Black and white and red all over. He can talk football all day. Ian Murta. The red, the cat and the tan. Well, my next guest is the chief football writer for the Yorkshire Post, who spends most of his days in the press boxes at Sheffield Wednesday, Leeds, Sheffield United, Huddersfield, Barnsley. But he's no stranger to the North East. Uh, he's covered uh, North East football for many, many years for the Journal. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the Black and White and Red All Over show my good friend Stuart Rayner. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Ian. How are you? I'm very good. Good to have you on. And you know something? Maybe the Times had heard that yeah, you were going to be a guest on my show today because of the fascinating uh, piece by uh, their statistician, the sports statistician, Bill Edgar. And it's about how the Northwest became the dominant force in English football. Well, we're not bothered about the Northwest and London in this show, but we are. I brought you onto the show because what I want to do is discuss the state of football, not just in the Northeast, an area you know very well, but the Northwest as well. And there's some absolutely fascinating stats here that I can't think of anyone better qualified to to discuss them, to analyse them, than, than, than your good self, uh, Stuart, because obviously, you know, your working life has been based in these two regions of ours. And uh, it's saying here, first, the first uh, stat is uh, major honours won by the various regions. Now, of course, the Northwest's way ahead with 156 major honours, including 64 league. Yorkshire and Humberside, 26 major honours, of which it including 11 league titles the northeast 20 league honors at uh, league major honors including 10 league titles now out of all those clubs newcastle are the most successful with 11 followed by sheffield wednesday and sunderland with eight then comes leeds with seven sheffield, sheffield united five huddersfield four and one honour each for Barnsley, Bradford and Middlesbrough. Sunderland fans, don't worry. Yes, you, you've got one more league titles than the rest. So how, are, the, are the, those figures uh, surprised you? Because what strikes me about them, Stuart, is that most the, the stats have barely changed in the last 40 years. Yes, well, I mean, that's that's the depressing thing, isn't it, that we've, we've seen, you know, the likes of, Huddersfield have their glory years, obviously before yeah. our time. Uh, the likes of you know Newcastle when they were uh, the Bank of England club leads in their in their heavy heyday. But in the in the modern game, you know, in the Premier League era, uh, they've 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 really struggled to uh, to keep up. And we, as, as those stats show, we've seen the we've seen the rise of the uh, well, not the rise, the con- the continued excellence of the. Of the northwest clubs and of the London clubs, and, and our our corner of the country is really um, really lagged behind. Well, that's right. I think uh, uh, looking at uh, seasons in the top flight, it's uh, Newcastle have recently overtaken Sunderland. Newcastle ninety two, Sunderland eighty six. Then comes Sheffield Wednesday sixty six, Sheffield United sixty three, and this may surprise people. Middlesbrough are next and on 61 and Leeds of course have only been in in the Premier League uh, 
for 53 seasons because Leeds effectively they were they were nothing club before Revy, weren't they? Yeah, I mean Revy, Revy totally you know kickstarted uh, kickstarted that club even to the point of the fact that they didn't they didn't used to play in white until uh, until he decided right, to uh, adopt the real Real Madrid. The Real Madrid, case, and, and yeah. The, the and they're actually quite a quite a young club in English football terms. You know, only formed in 1919 out of the uh, of the wreckage of of Leeds City. But yeah, I think I think with most clubs, you can you can kind of point back to one sort of defining manager who really lift, lifted their club to another level. And obviously, at Leeds, it's it's yes. certainly Don Revy. That's right. Are, are Leeds heading back to the Premier League after one season out, Stu? Um, I think so, but it's such a tight race between the, the, the top four clubs that you really wouldn't want to bank on it. I mean, Leeds have got mm. a horrendous record in the playoffs. They've never gone up through then. So um, right. yeah, even more so than most, they'll want to win automatic promotion. Um, but the fact yes. that they've got a manager in Daniel Fark, who, who has won the league twice before the championship, uh, gives me a lot of confidence that when it gets to the real squeaky bum parts of the season, his calmness that he's shown all season um, will give them a real, real advantage um, in what, as I say, is, is a really tight um, promotion race. He's, he appears to have been an inspired uh, choice as, as manager, Stuart, but it can't be ignored. He, the two spells, the two seasons, he had a Carroll Road with Norwich uh, in the top flight, both end in relegation. Is he just a promotion specialist or can he take leads to where they were in that first season under Marcello Bielsa? Well, I mean, I, that's, I think that's for him to prove more than anything else. I think he probably mm. has come to Leeds United hopeful that he will get more investment than he got at uh, Norwich City in those two seasons. Yes. You know, he, he felt that they didn't really sort of seize the opportunity and, and, and kick on by by giving him him the sort of budget. But, it, you know, until he gets that sort of budget, and it's, it's not guaranteed that he will, but uh, until he does, we'll, we'll never know if he, if he's uh, if he's capable of spending it wisely. What I do know is that he's got a very good eye for a, for a championship player and for, yes. you know, the sort of things that, that need to be need to be done at that level. And as far as leads are concerned, they've just got to get their before they can start worrying about what happens in the Premier League. Of, of course. When, you, you know, you know, you spend probably more time covering Leeds than any other at, at the moment, Stuart. Uh, Leeds are often compared to Newcastle and Sunderland because they are all one club, one club cities, fanatical support. Mm. Do you see similarities between Leeds and its fan base and, and, the, and Newcastle and Sunderland? Um, I do, and that's where I think Farker's qualities really come in. Because I think with all of those mm-hmm. clubs, because they're such big clubs, because as you say, they, they dominate their cities, you have a tendency that when things are going really well at any of those clubs, they can really snowball. And likewise, when things are going badly, they can really snowball. So the highs are much higher at Newcastle, at Sunderland and at Leeds, and the lows are much lower. And, and it, yes. it's really helpful to have a steady manager like Daniel Farker, like Eddie Howe, who doesn't get overexcited in the in the good and the bad, and just just plots a more steady course. And I, I think I think that's the big the big strength that that Farker has brought to Leeds. And as I say, I think Eddie Howe brings that to Newcastle as well. 
Now, of course, Leeds, there's a lot of people who would still maintain it's not even a football city, it's a rugby league city, but I, I, I don't agree with that. You might, you might be able to uh, talk about that more with a little more authority than myself. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess that is one difference between Leeds and and Newcastle and and Sunderland. You know, with the greatest of respect to Newcastle Falcons and the, and the Eagles and you know all the other sports yeah. clubs that there, there there are sort of more pull, more sporting pulls on, on the people of Leeds. Of course, the county cricket clubs based here, yes, here for course. the majority of its games as well. Um, so, th- so there is that difference. But you know, you look, you look at the attendances. At Leeds United, and you know they are they are up there. They're not not as high as either of the uh, of the two northeast clubs, but there's only really Sunderland in the Championship who can compete with them for week in week out popularity on the on the terraces. That's right. I mean, I think you know Sunderland fans would rightly claim their their attendances are I think several thousand above above Leeds, although. The fact is, Stadium of Light is, is a is a bigger capacity, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think I don't think it's it's helpful to get in a my dad's bigger than your dad conversation. Dad, the fact of the matter is, Sunderland do have do have the bit have the bigger attendances. Um, they're they they're both two two very big clubs. Um, yes, of course. But yeah. Leeds, Leeds, are, Leeds are big fish, and if if either of those clubs were to get to the Premier League anytime soon, they would, you know, more than hold their own uh, in in that division when it comes to uh, when it comes to fans. Yes, I mean, I'm sure you'll uh, concur. The, the more sides from the north in the Premier League, the better, as far as we're concerned, Stuart. Absolutely, but I think that, yeah. I think it's safe to say one club who won't be in the Premier League next season is Sheffield United. Now, yes, I think you, during your your days on the Journal. You, I think I'm right in saying you covered that quite one of Sunderland's worst ever seasons when they finished with, was it 16 points? So I can't mm. exactly remember what the total was, but I'd like to ask you a, a rather cheeky question. Who's worse, today's Sheffield United or that Sunderland side that went down with a, a record low haul? Um, well, I'll be honest with you. When, the, when Sunderland, uh, sorry, when Sheffield United played the first game of the season against Crystal Palace, looking at the team sheet mm-hmm. that day, uh, my first thought was, can this team actually beat Derby's record, <laughs> which outdid Sunderland yeah. for the lowest Premier League right. points total? And as as far That's as I was right. concerned, that was that that was the number one mission for for Sheffield United this season. They've managed that. Uh, Derby's. Derby's record was eleven. Sheffield United have, have managed thirteen. Um, yes, they're two pretty. They're two two clubs who both came up from the championship with with work to do. As I say, I joined the Journal in two thousand and five, so midway through that promotion season for yes for Sunderland. And on both occasions, the boards of those clubs really didn't give the managers the sort of money they needed to upgrade those squads to. Re- compete realistically in in the Premier League, and that's that's really shown for Sheffield United this season. Um, that's right. Who, I mean, I think the big worst. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Well, we know who's got the worst defence. I mean, it's, I think Sheffield United are on course to be the first side since uh, the Premier League was reduced to thirty-eight games a season to uh, concede hundred goals, aren't they? Mm, yeah, I mean they, they've got horrendous. Horrendous uh, defensive record. They possibly possibly got a little bit more up front than 
you know, Andy Andy Gray and uh, and John Stead had back in that team. But I mean, yes. really, it's a. It's not much of a not much of a proud boast no. for whoever you whoever you says is Hobson's choice, isn't it? What what I would say, and you know, the the fans at Riverside St James Park Stadium are, like, are rightly proud of of their passion and the atmosphere created. I've got to say that, and this was more, more the case during uh, Chris Wilder's first spell, but Bramall Lane, at its best, is as good as anywhere in the country, isn't it? Especially with the uh, where the the greasy chip buddy song just uh, before kickoff, I love the atmosphere of, of of the cop there. I think it's a a really vibrant old fashioned ground. And I think that's I think that's the key for Sheffield United. Really, they are going to get relegated. Let's be honest about it, barring yeah. barring a miracle. But it's really important that they go down with a fight to keep those fans you know, believing that next season can be different. You know, when Sunderland went down that time, uh, it needed a, a, a change of ownership, you know, bringing in a Roy Keane to, to, to set electric things right. Electric shock, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was an electric shock, exactly. So the the aim for Sheffield United really has got to be to sort of avoid that. I mean, they, they would like new ownership. The current owners are, are looking to to sell and, and they, they really don't have the have the money that clubs needs, but in terms of Wilder, they've brought him in to, to start the rebuilding process and, and they would really like him to, to see it through. So I think, it, I think mm-hmm. it's really important that whatever happens and say they go down with a fight, I think it's still realistic for them to finish above Burnley. I mean, they're, they're only below them on goal difference at the moment, albeit mm-hmm. a massive, uh, a massive amount uh, of goal difference. But um, if we see too many of the meek surrenders and obviously Newcastle, Fans will remember the way they caved in in the second half of that eight nil defeat yes. earlier in the season. Yes. If we see too many of those performances, then it can have a real hangover the next season. Um, yeah, you know, as it did yeah. for as it did for Sunderland the last time they were relegated from the Premier League. That's right. I'd like to talk to you a little uh, for a moment about Chris Wilder. When when he be, uh, when he joined Middlesbrough, I thought it was a coup. For the first few months of his time at the Riverside, I thought he was the perfect fit. And then it, it really did go bellies up, Stuart. And uh, he he became almost a, a parody of himself and he became quite uh, sarcastic and and uh, quite joyless, in fact. And I don't think there were a lot of tears shed at, at Middlesbrough training ground when, when he did leave. Is he the same man who, who was... You know, one of the first to to bring overloads to full back positions, and he he did shock a lot of uh, more established teams during that first spell with the blades in the top flight. Is he the same man, and, and uh, do you think he's doing a good job, or will go get back to former glories at Bramall Lane? Well, it it felt like at Middlesbrough he really got distracted over the Easter when he was linked with the Burnley job, wasn't he? And it felt That's like right. the. Yes. It felt like the 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 way he handled that it didn't he wasn't quick to you know stamp on that speculation. It felt like that did real damage to him and then carried over into yes, the I would next agree season. With that. Um, so that I obviously affected his with standing that. with it. Yeah, that obviously affected his standing with the Middlesbrough supporters as much as anything. Obviously, back at Bramall Lane, the club he played for, the club he took from League One up to up to ninth in the Premier League, albeit. You know, it was under him that the slide back down again started. He's he's back where he's loved. You know, there's there's a there's a real wish yes. and desire for him yes. to do well. 
um, yes. back at Bramall Lane. He's not trying to he's not trying to recreate the the, the glory days. We're not seeing those overlapping full backs. In fact, for uh, sorry, send, overlapping centre backs. In fact, for a lot of the time, um, we've even seen a we've even seen a back four due to the circumstances. But he is yes. He has brought a bit of passion back. You know, I, I mentioned that Newcastle surrender that possibly, well, definitely worse even than that was when they lost 5-0 at Burnley, who hadn't won a home game all season. And, and those performances were starting to t- stack up under Paul Hackingbottom. It just felt like yeah. morale had really been gro- ground, ground down. And Wilder is coming at, and at least breathed a brisk of fight into things. Uh, as Heckingbottom did, but but possibly even more so, he's 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 really pushed forward a couple of uh, a couple of young local players, and yeah, he's he's given the fans something to cling to. But you know, I've covered enough after 14 years in the northeast. I've covered enough relegation battles to know that the spirit <laughs> yes, can, you certainly can have. just be you knocked. Certainly have. <laughs> exactly, the the spirit can yes, just I'm... be knocked out of you if you keep taking blow after blow. It's really important that Sheffield United <laughs> don't get to that stage. I always saw Tekkenbottom uh, talk to a good game, but unfortunately his players couldn't play a good game. But uh, enough of Sheffield United. I'd like to talk about Sheffield Wednesday for a moment. Now, if there's, you know, we we like to think up here that we've got the patent on long-suffering football fans, you know, <laughs> Sunderland probably even more so than, than Newcastle and Middlesbrough. But Sheffield Wednesday are right up there, or should we say right down there in the way that they've been treated? Because that was a mighty, mighty club for years, wasn't it? And they looked as if they might get the glory days back when Chris Waddle was there in, in, the, in the 90s. But uh, oh, they're, they're fighting another relegation battle, and it's a long, long time since they've been in the, they haven't been in the, in the top flight, in fact, this millennium, have they? That's right. Yeah, it was turning the turning the millennium. They were they were relegated, and and yeah, I mean, you know, thinking back as as a kid, they were one of the big clubs in England. You know, they weren't yes. they weren't of the standing of you know Liverpool and Everton of that time. They weren't sort of perennial title challengers, but they were they were a real you know first division staple and and a big club. And of course, their ground always host or often hosted FA Cup semi finals and so on yes. and so forth. Um, but as you say, it's been it's been a, a downward spiral. They've been relegated to League One twice. Both times took a, took them a couple of years to get back. They're in danger of of doing it again. They just seem to have this uncanny knack um, in recent years, in particular, of just whenever anything goes well, just managing to shoot themselves in the foot and and go back down, you know, and 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 dip back down again. I, I, they've got a really bright young manager in, in Danny Roll, who it's his first mm, managerial job. But job. Been, yeah, I mean, he's been on the coaching staff for Germany. He's been Ralph Hussen, Hassan uh, assistant with Southampton. He's been on the coaching staff at Bayern Munich and at, and at uh, Leipzig. So he, he clearly knows what he's doing as a coach. He's, he comes across very well as a manager and you get the sense that maybe if they'd brought him in at the start of the season and they did interview him for the job in the summer, that yes. they wouldn't probably mm. wouldn't be in a relegation battle. But the fact of the matter was they gave everyone such a big head start that they're, yes, you did, know, they? they're involved in a really fierce battle. And I, I, I actually believe that they can get out of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not as you know um, fatalistic about them as I am about their uh, their neighbours across the city, but uh, it's going to be very tight. And it, and as I said before, it, it's self inflicted because the uh, the head start they gave everyone else, they basically gave everyone else two or three months. Uh, in they many got respects, 
Yeah, in many respects, the Owls are, are they are the aristocrat, uh, aristocrats of uh, Yorkshire football, aren't they? And you know they spent longer in the top flight than anyone else. One more major honours, but uh, they they are probably further away from the from the Premier League than than ever at the at the moment. But just very briefly before I get your predictions for the 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 three northeast teams this weekend, let's let's talk about Hull City now. I know uh, Steve Bruce doesn't have many fans at uh, at Newcastle, and perhaps even Sunderland, but uh, he was a great thing since sliced bread for his achievements at Hull City. But uh, uh, Liam Rossini is doing a wonderful job on Humberside, didn't he? And uh, they could yet be playing top-flight football next season. I think Hull City are one to watch. Yeah, um, mm. I think if they can if they can get in the playoffs. I mean, they've, they've already beaten Leicester and Southampton this season. Yes. If they can get in the playoffs, there's a lot of individual talent in that squad. They've got a very mm-hmm. good coach. They could they could really be dangerous. They could, you know, they could win the thing. I'm not saying they will, but they, they certainly have it within them. But they're one of those teams. Yes. They're a very modern team. Rossini's a very modern coach and a bit like teams like Brighton and what have you. They'll always give you a chance through overplaying and uh, and that sort of thing. So they, they if they, if they're... If they're very good players, get on top. They can they can do some wonderful things and be great to watch. But as an opposition team, they can always give you a chance as well. I saw them at uh, at the Riverside. In fact, I think you might have been there. Uh, uh, mm. Was it late late last year? And uh, for about sixty yeah. minutes, they were woeful. But uh, they ended up beating Middlesbrough two one. And they say the sign of a good team is uh, when you come away the, the points without playing particularly well. Absolutely, especially a team like Hull, who tried to be a very pretty team. You don't kind of associate those sort of qualities with them. But yeah, they definitely showed it that night and they've showed him a few more. And they've, they've got a very ambitious and very rich chairman, you know, who would, mm. if it wasn't for financial fair play, would have thrown even more money at this football club. So, you know, they they, they, they do mean business. And uh, mm. I say, I think I think they could be, I think they'll be exciting to watch in the last couple of months of, of the season. Might not always go the way uh, the way they want it to, but um, it'll be exciting to watch. So I'd keep an eye on them. Yeah. Where, where are you tomorrow, Sue? Uh, I'm at uh, Rotherham versus Sheffield Wednesday tomorrow. Um, the, another the, game which highlights the, the struggles Yorkshire football is going through. Yes, indeed. Now, let's get your predictions. Uh, uh, earlier in the show, I, I made my predictions and, uh, yes, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a pessimist for this weekend. I uh, think that Sunderland will lose at Norwich, Middlesbrough will lose at Stoke, and I think Newcastle will only draw against uh, Wolves, which will mean they won't have won a league game at St James's Park since uh, mid-December. What about you? Are you a little more optimistic than I am? Um, well, I mean, Wolves are having a very good season and um, oh, Gary just... O'Neill, obviously form, former Middlesbrough midfielder, is making a very That's good right. name for himself after the way he did at so Bournemouth last season. I, I was at Molyneux last week, I think it was, with Sheffield United. That's right, you um, were, you? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Wolves weren't, were a long way from their best uh, that day, but, you know, they still they still got a win and moved up to eighth in the table. So, yeah, they're... they're uh, they're a team to be reckoned with at the moment. Yeah, I think. So, that, what's going to happen at St one, James's Park? I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with you and, and say a draw on that one. Yeah. Hmm. And what about uh, Sunderland's trip to Carrow Road, Stuart? Um, I think I think the way things are 
for Sunderland at the moment. Obviously, we've got to wait and see how things um, settle down under the interim coach. But it's obviously difficult for them. I would fancy, yeah, I would fancy a Norwich win in that game. Mm, me too, and I'll have to push her here. But uh, Middlesbrough, last time they were in the Midlands, they came back with three points from uh, Leicester. Can they come back with three points from the Potteries? Um, I think that one might be a draw. A draw. Well, it's been great having you on, and uh, it'd be lovely to. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to have four or five teams uh, from uh, northeastern Yorkshire in the top flight, so we wouldn't have to do so much travelling? <laughs> that would be perfect. Yes. Well, all the best to you. Take care. Thanks, Ian. Bye. Black and white and red all over. Ian Murta. Three decades of reporting Northeast football. The Toon Black Cat and the Red.